Investing Compass is brought to you by Morningstar Australia. We'll run through the fundamentals of investing, take a deep dive of concepts and offer practical explanations, tools and resources that will allow you to invest confidently. The information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. Hi, and thanks for joining us for another episode of Investing Compass. Today, we're going to guide you through constructing your investment portfolio. Constructing your investment portfolio is really just a series of activities that translates your goals into the inputs needed to achieve them. Doing these steps gives purpose to your investing in investments, and it means that you're not just picking the stocks that your mate tells you about at the barbecue. That strategy rarely, if ever, gets an investor to their financial goals. Yeah, exactly. And so we're going to go through four steps today. So we will go through the step of defining your goals, calculating your required rate of return, selecting asset allocation targets, and selecting investments. Defining your goals means that you always have something to anchor your decisions to, and having a required rate of return gives you a clear target to achieve them. Having this required rate of return can then guide the decision-making process for selecting the types of investments to put into your portfolio. And then, of course, the final step is picking the individual funds, ETFs, shares, and bonds that you will purchase. So during this episode, we'll go through the steps, but we'll also walk through an example so that you can see how it actually plays out. Right. So there are three of us in the room, but I'm going to pick you, Shani. So we're going to use you as the example. And although people have multiple goals, pick one goal today. Do you think it's worth saying who the third person is? The third person in the room is Will, who is producing this for us. Um, So I'm 27 and my goal is to have a comfortable retirement. Yeah. And, you know, as I said before, of course, most people have more than one goal, but we're just going to use this one goal, Shani's retirement, as an example today. Yeah. So the first step is defining your goals. So at Morningstar, we're proponents of goals-based investing, and we prefer this to what you think uh, most investors would do. So the old approach of wealth maximization. And wealth maximization is an approach where you just try and make as much money as possible. Yeah. And that doesn't really work for a few different reasons. So the main reason is that people have varying circumstances and this one size fits all approach doesn't really take that into account. Each of us is unique. We all have different goals. And so every single person's approach to risky return should be different as well. Yeah, that's right, Mark. Failing to define objectives or goals can have several consequences. And the primary investing related consequences not having any sense of the actual return objectives to meet your goals. So in other words, the return you need to get to your goals. This leads to investors going into one of two default modes. So the first is risk avoidance, where too many assets are kept in safe assets such as cash um, or wealth wealth maximization, where too much risk is taken relative to your goals and timelines. So we'll jump into the first step of defining goals soon, but there are a couple of steps of prep that you need to do before you even start there. So the first is determining your net worth. You should take stock of your net worth by gathering up your most um, recent investment statements, bank balances, and super account. So for assets like a home or investment property, you'll need to do a bit of educated guessing for the value. In addition to your assets, you'll need to record any outstanding debts you have, like a mortgage, for example, on that property that Shani talked about. Then what you want to do is you want to create a personal cash flow statement. This gives you a point-in-time snapshot of what income comes into your household from your job or any other sources. And 
what you're able to what you're able to save. So basically showing you what you're spending and what's available for saving after your income comes in. And the purpose of doing this is really just determining whether your spending and saving patterns align with your long-term goals. Yeah, that's right. So if my goal requires me to save $10,000 a year, but I'm only saving $6,000, that shortfall is a problem and means that I have to adjust my spending and saving habits, earn more or change my goals to something a bit more achievable. And once you've completed those steps, you've really laid the groundwork for starting to defining your goals. So we'll go through this process, Shani, and there's a couple questions that you need to answer. So number one, what is your objective? So my objective is to retire comfortably. Okay, that's a good objective. And how much will it cost to fund that objective? So I want to have one and a half million dollars. Um, and I will admit that at 27, my vision for retirement will definitely evolve over time. But for now, I thought this was a good place to start because um, one and a half million dollars will give me about $60,000 a year if we assume I withdraw around 4% a year. Okay, so we've got the total amount. That is good. The other question is, when do you want to retire? And obviously, you know, for me, I am very interested in this question since we work <laughs> together. But uh, yeah, when do you want to retire? Um, you won't have to replace me anytime soon, Mark, because I want to retire at about 60. So I've got 33 years left. Okay, good. So we've got an amount of money. We have a time. But that $1.5 million, is that $1.5 million in today's dollars? Yeah. So that's not taking into account inflation. So if I take inflation into account, the amount that I need um, will become around $3.4 And this obviously isn't a figure set in stone. My circumstances and goals can change over time and this figure can be refined to match it. So the important part of this exercise is really just putting a stake in the ground so you have something to aim for. Okay. And inflation, of course, as we've talked about before, is just the fact that prices increase over time. So right now, Shani can picture what a $1.5 million retirement would get her, but she does need to adjust that number to account for the fact that her purchasing power will reduce over time. So inflation is varied every year. What percentage did you use to get from that $1.5 million to that $3.4 million? So I used a percentage of 2.5% for inflation um, for this example, just because the average rate of inflation has been between 2, two to 5%. Um, but in most recent years, it stayed between 2 and 3 Okay. And just to let people know how you actually calculate this, we do have a portfolio projection tool on our Morningstar Premium website that does account for inflation. But if you don't have access to that, you can just search for a financial calculator, literally just Google it, and that will be able to give you the future purchasing power of today's dollars. So in terms of inputs, you'll want to put in, in Shani's example, the $1.5 million into the present value of the financial calculator, because that is the amount in today's purchasing power that Shani wants. You'll put 2.5%, her estimate for inflation, into the interest rate or rate of return. And then, of course, 33 years into the time frame, because that is when Shani wants to retire. So we've got a future value and a time frame. Now what we need to know is how much have you already saved for retirement? So I've got about $50,000 saved for retirement. Okay. So you've got $50,000 saved for $3.4 million goal, and that's in future dollars. And you've got 33 years to get there. Are you going to be saving it all into your portfolio over that time? Yeah. So I'll be putting away $15,000 every year. Okay, great. So what we've now done is we have defined your goal. We have all the information we need to actually define a goal. So what we need to calculate is your required rate of return. And the required rate of return, as Shani said before, is what gets her from where she is now to where she wants to be in the future. And 
Calculating the required rate of return is really just a variation of the time value of money formula. And that is one of the most important concepts in investing because it answers the fundamental question that all investors have. How much will an investment now be worth in the future, given a certain rate of return and time frame? And in my case, I know the amount of money that I have, the amount I can save, the final cost of $3.4 million, and that I need it in 33 years. So that's all we need to solve for the required rate of return to meet that goal. Okay. So you can do that by just rearranging the time value of money formula or which most people will do, you can go back to that same financial calculator that calculator that we use in the inflation calculation. Yeah, so that's definitely my choice. So I used our Morningstar required rate of return calculator, but they all give you the same outcome. So if I enter in all of those variables, I'm told that my rate of return is 8 required rate of return is 8.8%. And this percentage is the annual rate of return needed on my investments to ensure that that 50K I have will get me to 3.4 million by the time I retire. Okay. And to put that in context, that 8.8% is a pretty high required rate of return. So yes, the ASX has returned 9.4% over the past 30 years. But if you listen to our podcast on interest rates, you would know that this might be hard to replicate in the future. And I do think it's really important that everyone recognize that it's extremely unlikely that we'll achieve the same eye-watering returns that we've seen in the past. And we'll have to work harder to get the returns that we need. Most investors have come of age between the mid-80s and now, and none of us has really any experience in a rising interest rate environment or an environment with high inflation. So the takeaway from all of this, and do go back and listen to that podcast, but the takeaway is that returns on all sorts of asset classes, from fixed income to equities to housing prices, have all been inflated by falling interest rates. So when we're looking at a long-term investment like Shawnee, for retirement, you have to assume that returns will be lower, which means we need to lower our expectations when we're considering if our required rate of return is actually achievable. So, Shani, if you wanted to give yourself a greater possibility of getting to your goal, what are the sum of things you could do? Yeah, so I could change any of those variables that are in my control. So I could work longer. I could change my retirement age to 65, give myself an extra five years, not just to make additional investments, but also give my investment time time to grow. Um, I could also increase my annual investments. I could save more. So instead of putting aside $15,000, I could put an extra couple thousand in. And the obvious answer, of course, is adjusting my goal. So expecting less than $3.4 million in retirement. All right. So so what do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think retiring at 60 is not really my cup of tea. Um, I would probably want to keep going a little longer. So let's say that I retire at 65. So if I retire at 65 and add an extra five years to my time horizon, that lowers my required rate of return from 8.8% to 6.9%. And that's still a high rate of return, but over a 38-year time horizon now, um, it's more achievable. All right. So that is great. We have your required rate of return. You need to get 6.9%. So now what? So the next step is deciding on asset allocation. So Roger Ibbotson, he's a professor of finance, or was, um, author and founder of Ibbotson Associates, which now actually happens to be a Morningstar company. He summed up asset allocation decisions pretty well. So he said that on average, 90% of the variability of returns and 100% of the absolute level of return is explained by asset allocation. Okay. So yeah, to break this down a little bit, what Roger really meant was that the mix of assets that you have in your portfolio is a key factor in the returns you actually earn. So this is obviously really important. 
So let's start with what an asset class is. An asset class is a group of securities that have common characteristics that are distinct from other asset classes. They're traditionally divided into income or defensive assets and growth assets. Generally speaking, growth assets like equities, property, and infrastructure are assumed to have high returns. In the same breath, defensive assets like cash and bonds are assumed to have a lower average return than growth assets, but they're less volatile and the returns tend to be a bit more sustainable. Okay, so in this step of constructing a portfolio, you're deciding on the percentage of growth in defensive assets that will reasonably give you a chance of getting that 6.9% return over a 38-year period. And although it's not as aggressive as the 8.8% return we originally calculated, it's still pretty high. And that will require you tilt towards growth assets like equities, property, and infrastructure. So Morningstar provides subscribers with something called an asset allocation guidance. So if you're not sure how much Aussie equities, international equities, property, fixed income, etc., you should have in your portfolio, they give you percentages of each that will give you the exposure you need. Um, of course, returns aren't guaranteed, but it gives you guidance to get the right exposure to growth and defensive assets. So if you're not a subscriber, you can take out a four-week trial for free. Yeah, and if you don't want to do that, there are also a bunch of calculators that give you guidance on asset allocation mixes that you can find just by Googling it. But many of these have a common problem. They focus on how much risk you feel comfortable taking instead of how much risk you should take in order to reach your goals. Yeah, and this is a real problem. So I have 38 years to achieve my goal. Does it really matter to me if I lose $1,000 in a year if I'm still on track? Um, and it may make me nervous, but I think taking a step back and looking at whether I'm going to achieve my goal is ultimately what's more important. Right. And we do stress this a lot, but it's important to remember the biggest risk, in our opinion, is not short-term volatility. The biggest risk is not achieving your goals. So try to find a calculator that focuses on your return outcomes and that end goal. Okay. So I'm going to use Morningstar's guidance. How the guidance has been structured is that there are different profiles for different required rates of return. So it goes CPI plus uh, 1%, so matching inflation, and then 1% return above that, and then CPI plus 2, 3, and so on. So I need around CPI um, plus 4%, so I'm going to go for the most aggressive asset allocation target. And this makes sense because of how long my time horizon is. Right. So this profile has a 90% weighting towards growth assets, once again, equities, listed property and infrastructure, and a 10% weighting towards cash and fixed income. So those are the more defensive assets. And its recommended time frame is at least nine years, and I've got 38, so we're fine in that regard too. And this tilting towards growth assets means that this allocation is likely going to have short-term fluctuations, but we're okay with that because it means a high potential for long-term performance and getting me to my goal. And this 90% weighting towards growth assets um, is broken down further. So 30% should go into Aussie equities, 45% into international equities, 10% into listed property, and 5% into global infrastructure. So now we picked an asset allocation target. What do we do now? <laughs> so now we choose the investments that will actually meet those allocations. And it's important to remember, we talked about this in the beginning, that this is the step that many investors just normally skip to. So they skipped everything else that we've done. And they'll hear about a promising investment. Shani gave the barbecue example, but they might read about an ETF uh, and just decide that they want to put the majority of their spare cash into it. And so going through this process that Shani went through, you can see how mismatched this investment might actually be to what your objectives are. 
Yeah, exactly. And it's so important to start with yourself and what you're actually trying to achieve. Not only does this give you a bit of a roadmap, which might give you peace of mind, it increases your chances of getting to your goals and being able to fund your goals. All right. So let's get you into some investments, Shani. So you wrote a guide about selecting investments, which goes into detail about this. But what are some of the considerations we should think about right now? Yeah, so um, the guide really goes through selecting investments step by step. So it'll walk you through how to do this for each of your asset classes that you're trying to fill. So we'll do that briefly here, but some of the considerations when you're picking investments are whether you're going to go for a direct equity or a managed investment. Um, so a managed investment could be a managed fund, an ETF, or a LIC, um, which is a listed investment company. Then if it is a managed investment, whether you want to take an active or passive approach. So active is when you have someone actively picking the assets within the investment and passive is when it follows a market index like the ASX 200. So that'll be investing in the top 200 biggest stocks um, on the ASX by market cap. So the last major consideration is whether you're going to focus on exchange or non-exchange traded products. Um, and an exchange traded product would be an ETF or a LIC, something you can invest on through the ASX. And then an unlisted product could be a managed fund. So we won't go through picking investments for each allocation, but we'll run through one and then we'll also go through some of the general trade-offs. Okay. So why don't we use Aussie equities as an example? And the first consideration Shani went through before is whether you're going to use direct equities or a managed investment. And I do think it's important to note that you don't need to stick to one or the other. You're able to have managed funds, ETFs, and direct equities in your portfolio. But once again, you do have to determine what is right for your own circumstances. Okay, so my um, Aussie equity allocation is 30%. And the first thing I'll look at is how much of how much is that um, of my initial investment of 50000 Okay. Well, even I can answer that without a calculator. <laughs> so that is $15,000, Shani. That's quick math, Mark. So um, this qualifies me for both direct shares and collective investments. And it's important to consider brokerage, though, for listed investments. So direct shares, ETFs, and LICs. So to buy any of these investments, you do need to incur brokerage. And brokerage varies from provider to provider. But generally, for Aussie equities, you'd be looking between 5 and $20. So we do need to consider whether the brokerage cost is too much for the investment. For example, if I was investing $100 instead of $15,000, the brokerage wouldn't make sense. You're spending between 5 and 20% of your investment before the market starts moving. All right. So this this $15,000 we talked about was the allocation from that $50,000 that you have yep, saved for retirement. Yep. But you also mentioned that you're going to continue to save. So we have additional money coming into your portfolio. Mm -hmm. And you said you're going to save $15,000 every year. Now, is this $15,000, is that a lump sum? Or are you going to invest paycheck to paycheck? So in this case, why don't we just say paycheck to paycheck? Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. And more often than not, unlisted investments, so managed funds, will not charge you for additional investments. And that is a big plus. It means that Shawnee's not going to incur any of this brokerage every month when she invests her money, which, as Shawnee said before, can be a huge drag on her returns. And this is a question we get a lot. Do I save up and invest in a lump sum or do I dollar cost average? And dollar cost averaging is investing smaller increments over a period of time, basically what you're doing when you invest paycheck to paycheck. And we're not the only ones to explore this, but people have studied the results of both approaches over a period of time. And ultimately, time in the market wins out. 
So investing sooner gives your money a longer time um, horizon to grow. So if you're not accumulating, sorry, if you are accumulating your funds over the year, best that it is invested instead of sitting in cash. So doing this over a long period allows um, it to compound and of course means that you spread your risk over multiple asset prices. Yeah. And so what Shani means by this, if you're not investing that $15,000 in one go, you are uh, you are risking that you might get an unfavorable price when you do want to invest that. So instead, she's investing small amounts over the course of the year. And the market fluctuates. So some may go in at higher prices and some may go in at lower prices, but you're not just stuck with one price. Yeah, so far, um, I'm qualified for both equities and collective investment vehicles, but I'm planning to make additional investments every month. But what you do also need to consider is whether you have the propensity to invest in direct shares. Yeah, and we talked about this on a previous podcast as well, but you should invest in direct shares if you think you have some sort of investing advantage. And there are many different advantages, but they can include informational edge, so knowing something about the investment that isn't priced into the share price. You could have an analytical edge or advantage, so being able to interpret widely available information like financial statements in a more insightful way. And of course, there's structural edge or advantage, and that's really where I think that investors can easily one-up professionals. Every professional says that they're long-term investors, but almost all of them operate in an environment that structurally discourages this, hence the structural edge. So many professionals are under pressure to outpace or at least match their peers over one-year periods. And if they fail, the investor walks away. And this can cause closet indexing when um, active managers build portfolios that look extremely similar to underlying indexes. And they also chase performance where professionals are just focused on hot stocks and sectors. Yeah. And what this means is that many professional investors lack the patience to wait for stocks to trade at a meaningful discount to their fair value or the patience to hold cheap and unloved shares long enough for them to approach their fair value. And in a study that Morningstar did looking at U.S. domestic equity funds, it found that the turnover rate was approximately 63%. So that means that the average holding period for a stock in those funds was 19 months. And that certainly does not meet the definition of long-term investing. And as Shani said before, the transaction costs and any capital gains that are distributed to you, those eat into investor returns. So you can see that as individuals, um, we wouldn't face any of those pressures. Um, And the last advantage that we have is behavioral. And it's grounded in the fact that humans are hardwired to make poor investing decisions. Um, We're driven by fear and greed, which is a formula for buying at the top of the market and selling at the bottom, which we definitely don't want to do. Um, But both individual and professional investors create elaborate models and theories designed to dictate when and why to buy or sell a security. And despite these models, there's still a high probability that an investor will panic when the market goes down and will succumb to the fear of missing out on the gains when it keeps climbing. And this is where you decide what kind of investor you are and whether you can stomach the volatility that markets often bring, especially in an asset class like Aussie equities. Right. So, Shani, you and I have certainly had this conversation. I think we've talked about this on previous podcasts as well, but you love managed funds. And I think it's because of this advantage, right? Yeah, I do, Mark. And um, I still do invest in direct equities, but I often find I don't have the stomach to stick out decisions or I'll continue to check my stocks every single day, which is time consuming and um, often unhealthy behavior as an investor as well. So those day-to-day price movements shouldn't really worry me, but I've acknowledged that they do. And that's the type of investor that I am. Yeah. And I think that self-awareness is really important. But 
Managed funds, ETFs, and LICs, as Shawnee said before, they're all professionally managed, so they take that decision-making process away from you for the most part, which can be a good and bad thing. So if you're an investor that prefers control, you can stomach risk and stay focused on long-term objectives. This might be time in the journey that you veer from the direction that I think Shawnee's about to make. Yeah. So without those advantages and with those constant additional investments, I've chosen to go for a managed fund for my Aussie equity allocation. Okay. So that's good. We have a managed fund. The next step is you need to decide, are you going to invest in an active or passive fund? And we've mentioned this report before, but every six months, Morningstar publishes a report called the Active Passive Barometer. It is US focused, but still some pretty revealing insights. In the latest report, the results reveal that in general, actively managed funds have failed to beat their benchmarks, especially over longer time horizons. So only 24% of all active funds topped the average of their passive rivals over the 10-year period that ended in June 2020. When we're looking at where the success actually occurs, it was highest among international funds, real estate funds, and bond funds. And the lowest success rate was in large cap US funds, which are extremely well researched and watched. Yeah, so what this really means is that if you're looking for exposure to large cap stocks in well-researched markets like the Aussie market, you're probably better off going for a passive fund just because um, although it's not impossible, it's really hard for active managers to find opportunity in these markets. And also opportunities that can justify and make up for their higher fees in performance are few and far between. So if you're looking at asset classes or opportunities that are not as well covered or don't have as much interest, understanding whether an active manager can add value there could help you find the right fit for your portfolio. Yeah. And one of the advantages we obviously have at Morningstar is we just decided to walk across the floor and talk to one of our manager research analysts who rates funds and ETFs all day. So we talked to Andrew Miles and he shared the following. So he said that if you're investing in active funds that are mostly looking at large cap stocks like the ASX 200, you're going to find it difficult to achieve a return that over that outperforms the benchmark. So these companies are heavily researched by institutions and fund managers and brokers. And so people really understand what they're doing. And if you go lower down in the market, where there aren't as many eyes on the companies and traditional brokers don't typically cover these companies, there may be opportunities for these companies to be misunderstood. And that's really what allows managers and individuals to find attractive buys. Yeah. So generally less efficient markets are the markets that investors are not as interested in. And there are structural issues preventing investors from accessing them. So small caps is a really good example where you might seek an active fund or markets that aren't as well covered like emerging markets. So if you'd like a little bit more information about active versus passive and where active managers can add value, we go through this in our episode, What Are Funds and ETFs? But yes, um, Aussie equities, extremely well-researched, extremely difficult to find opportunities um, and beat benchmarks, especially above large fee hurdles. All right. So I think the conclusion we've come to is you want a passively managed fund that invests in Aussie equities with an initial investment of less than $15,000, so an initial investment limit below $15,000. And you want, because you're going to save every paycheck, you want low minimums and no fees as you periodically make those other investments into this fund. Yeah. So with passive funds, there's no difference in the equities that you're investing in. So you can focus on the fees that are being charged by the provider. So getting a cheaper passive fund means higher returns for you over the long run. 
Okay, so there are two main funds at Morningstar Rates that are available to retail investors that follow the ASX 300 Accumulation Index. So that's the top 300 stocks um, by market capitalization in the ASX. So one of these funds is iShares by BlackRock, and the other is Vanguard Australian Shares Index. So iShares meets all of the requirements Shani is looking for, except for one pretty big one. You need to have $50,000 as an initial investment. So that leaves me with Vanguard Australian Shares Index. Um, I meet the minimum investment amount. The additional investments start at $10, so I can invest frequently. And the management fee is low. It's 0.16%. All right. So we've simplified this process quite a bit, especially considering that we could have had multiple funds in the Australian shares allocation with different objectives. But the principle remains, though. It is personal circumstances and your own goals that will determine and direct the investments that you ultimately choose. Yeah, exactly right. So my aversion to picking and sticking to direct shares and the amount that I was investing, the fact that I am making smaller additional investments instead of lump sum investments, all factors that contributed to the decision and all factors that could change person to person. So it's easy to see how an ETF that you saw in the newspaper or Shani's mate told her about at the barbecue does not consider any of her circumstances, and that makes it pretty unlikely that it's going to be able to fit in your portfolio the same way that this fund would fit in Shawnee's. So we want to repeat this process, obviously, for each one of the allocations, but this process is important. Yeah. So the next step would be to go back and repeat the process for your international equity portion, your fixed income and cash portion, your infrastructure and listed property portion. And each will have their own considerations, uh, but you can use our guide to selecting investments as a bit of a checklist to walk you through the process and find the right investment to match each allocation. All right. So Shani, we have covered a lot today. So why don't we go through a bit of a summary? So I'll take us through a bit of a summary since, <laughs> Sounds good. since you've had to bear your future investing goals exactly. for everyone on the podcast. So very exposed. Okay. Well, <laughs> I, I'm sorry about that, but hopefully it's for the greater good, right? Exactly. All right. So what did we talk about today? So number one, we said define your goals. Defining your goals means that you are investing with a purpose. Your goals are your North Star and they will guide you through your investing journey. Next, find your required rate of return. This is where you're finding an objective to get you to your goals. So this is the objective is the amount that you need to make off of your investment. So your required rate of return will then inform your asset allocation, which of course leads to the next step. Select your asset allocation. Assets have different risk and return profiles. And all we're trying to do here is match your required rate of return with the assets in your portfolio to ensure that you have the right mix between growth and defensive assets. And of course, the last step that we just went through is selecting your investments. Investments are the vehicle that gets you to your end goal. Usually people skip to this step, but it's crucial that these investments that you're selecting are right for you and your circumstances. Going through this portfolio construction process ensures that you do this. So I might go through a few resources that can support you during this process. Um, so we have the guide to portfolio construction and out, that outlines these steps in detail and also walks through the tools and resources that can assist you in the process, taking a lot of guesswork out of the process. 
Then we have the guide to selecting investments, and that goes into detail for the last step. It helps you weigh up the pros and cons of different investments and outlines which circumstances they might suit. And the other steps can be quite straightforward, but step four involves a lot of variables and considerations. So the, this guide walks you through these considerations. All right. So that is our episode for today. We would appreciate any feedback or comments. There is an email that's in the episode notes, which happens to be my email. So if you have any of that, any of those feedback or comments, just send them directly to me. We'd also love it if you rated the podcast. Any rating will do, but we'd obviously prefer a higher one. But wanted to thank all of you for joining us today. And I wanted to thank Shawnee for walking through that example, which hopefully will be helpful for everyone. Thanks, Mark. Any advice is general advice prepared by Morningstar without reference to your financial objectives, situation or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest.